0: owe that honor uh, that it's being recognized today to a lady named Anna M. Jarvis of West Virginia. Amazing enough, she was a childless woman herself, but starting in 1908, she began to persuade local churches to give thanks and honor to moms for their often very taken-for-granted role, and she began working with churches, and it started spreading from church to church, and then eventually the American society picked it up, and it's become what it is today, Tragically, Anna Jarvis became very embittered before she died because of the way the commercial interests have encroached on Mother's Day. And instead of it being a really a time of thankfulness for what God has done and being able to honor moms for their role, it seems like commercial interests have made it more of an obligation. And that's a tragedy. We hope to avoid that ourselves. We hope to be able to express to you very much that we honor you we honor you for the role that God has given you and the lives you have touched. In our own time, I would say it's become a little more difficult because we kind of get confused about exactly who is mother. I want to give you three definitions that would be more proper. I remember reading some material some time ago that gets it very confusing, but I don't think it needs to be that confusing. Three different definitions. First of all, the biological one is, is a woman who has given birth to a child. That is the most simple, and regardless of any other involvement that particular woman may or may not have in the life of that child, she is still to be honored. God has used her to nurture that child in her womb and bring that child to life, and so she should be honored. Another definition, I think a very good one, is, is the female parent of a child. That usually is the same woman that gave birth to the child, but it also includes the many women that have adopted children into their family. They also should be honored as taking on properly that role of being a mom. And so a mom does not have to have a genetic linkage to the child. She is parenting that child. Another definition, and I thought this one was very interesting too, and I think very proper, is the woman who exercises care and tenderness towards another or gives parental advice. This would include all those women that have uh, kids they have in foster care. They've not adopted them, but they are giving that care and nurture. It also is all those women that give care and nurture to kids who are not their own, and they go home at night, but they often are interacting with that child and have a special role in that child's life. Most of us have come from homes where there was still some other female that we had a special relationship with. And without disparaging in any way our own mom, we would call that, that's my second mom, because they had such an impact on her life. Sometimes it might be the leader of a, um, you know, some group we're in, Girl Scouts or a, a Sunday school teacher or somebody along those lines, somebody at camp, someone who's had a special impact. We'd say, that's my second mom because of the impact of that. And then there are those who would use that and be more grateful even because their own parent did not do well at her nurture. And there was someone who stepped in and became that second mom and really fulfilled what the biological or adoptive mother did not, the nurture, the care that was needed. And so we honor each of you, regardless of how you would define yourself as a mother in any of these definitions. You have taken on that role, and God has used you. I think it's also important to note that a... Mom's role does not end when the child becomes an adult. What does change though is a relationship. She is still going to be mom, and whether you like it or not, you're still the son, you're still the daughter. Mary's going, yes, and that's true. But the relationship has changed. It's now an adult to adult relationship, not a parent-child relationship. And that necessitates the ape and strings of control are cut, but the love still remains. And in Mary's case, so does the baklava. Yeah. <laughs> She's still going to be available for motherly advice and giving motherly care whenever it's needed. That's an, a neat thing. Now, Scripture commands us to honor our father and mother, but it does not elaborate in any way on exactly who that's going to be. Any of those definitions I gave you, I think, would fit. Exodus twenty twelve commands it, so is Ephesians 6, 2. Certainly, it does encompass the biological mother, the adoptive mother. But I think in view of Romans 12:10, where we are to give preference and honor to one another, certainly those that have fulfilled that role in any way in your life, it's appropriate. Honor them. Give thanks to God for what that woman has done in your life. Now, this morning, I want to address the topic of becoming a godly mother. And by that, I'm specifically referring to fulfilling the role of providing care and nurture in the life of another, uh, a child, and doing so in a godly manner, with a godly attitude. You don't have to be the one that has bore that child, but you do have to be the one who is going to give that care and nurture. And to be a godly mother in that sense, you have to be a godly individual. You can't be a godly mother if you're not godly, right? And so I want to talk about that, especially in the light of the fact that no woman is perfect And before you snicker, guys, don't worry, I'm going to get you on Father's Day. We all know you're not perfect, okay? None of us are, and we are going to be short from where God wants us to be. And so we are growing in our maturity with the Lord and walking him. So no matter where you are in life, you are always going to be becoming a godly mother. You're going to be growing in that and becoming even more of what you could be and what Christ wants you to be as he changes you into a complete reflection of his image. The goal is is to be on the path to maturity and knowing that other people are in that same boat with you. Yes, some are a little farther ahead, some are a little farther behind, but you're all going together, becoming all that God wants you to be, reflecting him, and then because of that, impacting the life of somebody else. Now, the starting point, then, in becoming a godly mother is going to be your own walk with God. That's where it has to start. Now, I'm optimistic enough to believe that the vast majority of women do want to be good mothers to their children, and that they are grieved when they fail in some way. I'm also pessimistic enough to know that there are some that do not have that desire, and they are simply evil individuals. But we are going to be dealing with those who desire to be godly, and giving you how that can happen. The failure to be a good mother is always going to trace back eventually to your understanding of God and your walk with him. It will always trace back there. Somewhere along the line, when there's a failure, it is your understanding of who he is, what he is like, what he has done for you, what he desires from you, and then walking with him in obedience. It comes back to this relationship with God. The problem is, is that in order to get past this problem of not understanding him, we have to learn and grow. And we have something blocking us, and it's sin. Sin blocks us from the personal relationship we need with God, and until the sin problem is resolved, it is always going to keep blocking us. And so we will keep failing. We may desire to be better, but we're going to keep failing because we're blocked by sin. We were born as sinners by nature, our actions tragically demonstrate that from an early age. Now, this is something I think every mother knows. You have that infant, you bring them home, and they always just go, Meow, rah, rah. You're like, "Please feed me, I 'm get a little hungry, and when you get an you know, opportunity, don't rush yourself, but just when you get some opportunity, you know check me." right? All of you had children like that, right? You didn't. You mean, your kid went!" Ah! You had one of those children, or you had a normal child. That's a sinner. (laughs) And when you brought that child home, you brought a sinner home. Because the cry is not, feed me when you get the chance. It's, I'm hungry, and I want it now. I'm uncomfortable, I want to be comfortable now. So do something, or I'll make your life miserable. Right? Isn't that where we come from? Okay, that is the nature that we, we come with. We are born sinners, That simply progresses through life, doesn't it? Now, over time, we hopefully learn some courtesy. We might even learn a little patience, but it still comes down to we want what we want when we want it, not necessarily what God wants in his timing. And that blocks us. That's sin. We need to come to we want what God wants in his timing and are grateful for whatever he provides. That's godliness. Godliness. Now, what helps us overcome this sin problem? Well, it's the gospel message, is it not? And without getting all the theological details, it is simply the gospel. The good news of Jesus Christ. By faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ, trusting in his promises, I am forgiven my sin, I gain a new nature, and I can start doing what was previously impossible. Remember, Jesus Christ... The facts of the gospel come down to this. God in human flesh, born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, willingly died as a substitute payment for sin, not because he was forced to, he willingly did so. It was a complete and sufficient sacrifice for the payment of everyone's sin. He rose on the third day, he is risen, he is with the Heavenly Father now, preparing a place, one day he will return and take us to be with him forever." Those are the facts of the gospel. And it's a wonderful thing, but that those facts have to not just be acknowledged. They have to believe, and your trust has to be in them, that it's sufficient. But, of course, to acknowledge those things, to acknowledge that Jesus was sinless, makes an immediate comparison with you, makes you sinner, means there's repentance. There's a change in your heart and attitude towards God, leaning in yourself, completely at his mercy, by trusting Christ's promises. Repentance is simply a change of mind that necessarily results in a change of behavior. We change our minds from our sin and our self-righteousness, cast ourselves completely on the mercy and grace of God because it is by God's grace that we are saved, Ephesians chapter 2. Result? We have a change of masters. We are no longer under sin and Satan. We are yielding ourselves to our new master, the Lord Jesus Christ, and righteousness, Romans chapter 6 speaks about that. Now, Christ has given us some wonderful promises, but do you believe them? Do you really hold on to them? John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13 says, But to as many who received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of God, are man, but of God. God is at work, but do you believe that, that you have become a child of God through faith in him? Jesus' promises are that this is related to your faith. John 3.36, He who believes in the Son has eternal life. He who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Do you believe, or is his wrath abiding on you? John 5.24, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life, does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. Has that happened for you? Have you passed from death to life, from being dead in your trespasses and sin unto life, spiritual life, new life in Christ, being born again. And the promises that Christ gives us are secure. Why? Because they're bound up in him. Jesus said in John chapter 10, verses 27 and 30, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give eternal life to them and they shall never perish. No one shall snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. Those who belong to Christ are secure. Why? Because he holds you. No one can steal you out of his hand and you can't jump out either. Okay? He's got you. He's firm. But it's going to come back down to what do you believe? Are you trusting his promises? This is what overcomes sin. Faith in God and his trust and his promise then results in this new birth. Spiritual life, again, is what was dead and trespassed sin is now made alive in Christ, Ephesians 2. You are now adopted into God's family, Romans 8. What was impossible is now possible. You can live in a way that to please God. You couldn't do that before. All your righteous deeds were as filthy rags before him. But in trusting and walking with Christ, you can please Him. You can change. You can live in such a way as to please God because the Spirit of God now indwells you and He teaches you, He directs you, He guides you, He even intercedes for you, according to Romans 8. The child of God can now begin to understand the nature of God, understand the will of God, the character of God. Why? Because you now have the mind of Christ, according to 1 Corinthians 2. A believer can also then walk with God in righteousness and by the power of the Spirit. In the book of Ephesians, we find a call for every believer to walk with Christ, and that's sort of the theme in chapters 4, 5, and 6. Everyone who professes to be a Christian is called to walk in a manner worthy of your calling, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. We're to walk in humility, gentleness, patience, forbearance, and love, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 2. We are to fulfill our part in the body of Christ. That means our spiritual gifts are used for the good of the rest of the body. And together we mature and we help each other stand firm against the schemes that are against us, against the wiles of our adversary, against the lies and deceit that are all around us. That's Ephesians 4, verses 12 through 16, as well as 1 Corinthians 12. We find that we no longer are to walk in the futility of a darkened mind that is conforming to this world, but instead... Christ is changing us. He's transforming us by a renewed mind. And we put on the new self, which reflects this image of God in righteousness, truth, and holiness. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, as well as Ephesians chapter 4, 17 through 24. That's the whole theme. This new self, it's increasingly marked by attributes such as love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, the fruit of the Spirit, rather than the deeds of the flesh, which Galatians 5 lists out among them, unrighteousness, anger, enmity, wrath, malice, bitterness, immorality, impurity, filthiness, sensuality, and all the other aspects you can think of, hedonism, materialism, and general selfishness. And that's why the Cologne girls could sing about a mother's love. Notice what they sang. It all dealt with the fruit of the Spirit, gentleness, and kindness, remove the rest of it. And that's what pursuing a godly mother is all about. I'm living for God. He's marking my life. Those attributes now are being instilled into my children because they're a reflection of what God has done in me rather than being conformed to the image of this world and reflecting that which is evil. Now, the question arises, how does a mother walk with God and be characterized by these attributes, especially when she's chasing young children around all day? Where do you get the time? How do you do this in practicality? Some of you with young kids are going, yeah, tell me, please, right? Well, it's a good question. The answer is it's done the same way as it's done for everybody else. It's simply your life circumstance is marked by kids rather than something else. But all of us have the basic same struggle. You must be willing to make God a priority, and find ways in which you can be in his word, memorize it, meditate on it, and walk in it. You need to learn to take advantage of what time is there so that you can pursue these things. Now, let me give you a few practical tips, though. These are things that I've observed in Diane, or we've talked about it over the years, or we've seen in others, about how to develop a walk with God in the midst of a very busy schedule Especially when you're trying to take care of multiple young children. But again, the principles here are the same that go into any other category. You may just have to tweak it a little bit, but fit into your own life circumstances. But they're really the same. Men, that goes for you too, because we're all called to do this. But first of all, make Bible reading a habit. Make Bible reading a habit. Take advantage of whatever time that is available when the young kids are taking a nap. You're up either before them or after they've gone to sleep. Find wherever you can grab some time and make Bible reading a habit. Or also include them in your Bible reading. Read aloud to them. That's always good. Make Bible reading a priority over the other materials that you may be interested in, magazine, books, novels, etc and also your entertainment choices. It has to be a priority. You've got enough time to watch a, a TV show. You've got enough time to read the Bible, okay? It's really as simple as that. You've got to exchange things, make it a priority. Listen to the Bible in audio recordings or sermons while doing chores or driving. Uh, a lot of you have commutes. Take advantage of it, especially since we've got these MP3 players. You can just plug in your ears and you can take advantage of the time that's available. Look for it. It will be there. Encourage things like family devotions. Lead young children in their devotions. That's good for you as well as them. I've always found that you learn a lot more when you teach. Not only that, but when you teach children, they're looking at you expecting you to actually do what you're telling them. And that puts you on the spot. You go, well, I'm sorry, you know, I'm growing in this too. That's another good way for you to learn. Participate in opportunities at church. Sunday school, worship service, home Bible studies, and discuss what you learn. Discuss what the kids have learned. Make that just part of your normal family life. We talk about what we're learning or talk about it with your friends. Uh, Take advantage of the sermon, think about it section in the uh, the bulletin notes. It's a good way just to get a conversation going and talking about those things that are important. You can talk about weather, sports, and politics. Why can't you talk about the Bible and what you're learning, right? Another thing, keep a journal. Now, I realize that's going to be a real stress for some of you because you don't like to write, but some of you do. Keeping a journal is a good way. Write down the things that you've seen displayed of God's character and his attributes. If you're just even driving you know, here to church and you saw beautiful things, you know, Lord, thank you for the beauty. Thank you for how you've given me uh, the eyes to perceive all these things you've, you know, you've done. Uh, you're studying something, you learn a, a new biological fact. There's a lot of intricacies out there. It's like, wow, Lord, your creation is so intricate. It reflects on your, your intelligence, your complexity. Okay? Keep a journal of those things. Uh, write down the th- ways that you see him working in your life and the- those around you. You've got to make talking with God a priority because prayer becomes a way of life by practicing prayer. It's not going to happen if you don't practice. Pray throughout the day, even if it's just for a minute or two here and there, instead of waiting for some big block of time. You may never get the block of time, but you can take a minute or two and pray about whatever is currently going on. For example, um, give God thanks as soon as you notice that he's, what he's done or petition him as soon as you get the request. Make prayer part of your family and private devotions, that that's just part of what you do. Uh, Another, participate in corporate prayer, those times when you get together with other people, whether it's family or friends or with the people in the church. Okay, participate in that. Keep a prayer journal. Write down the praises, the thanksgivings, as well as the requests and the petitions. Keep track that way of what God is doing. It's an encouragement to be able to go back and go, wow, we've been praying about this for quite a while, and here's the answer. Because sometimes it will be a while before you're going to see and understand what the answer is. But keep a journal of that. That helps. And then also do strive to set aside a block of time whenever you can concentrate on prayer with the least distraction. And that kind of goes back to Bible reading. You may have to wait until they're taking a nap. Or some of you, if the kids are going off to school, that's a good time. These things are more important than how clean your rug is. All right? Which is more important, all your, your chores around the house or making sure you're walking with God? What's the priority? Another one is serving God. Find at least one ministry to participate in and become committed to it. Just one. At least one, though. If you have other time, then participate in other things. But find at least one thing you can do. Now, understand, it may take you some trial and error to find what ministry you're really good at and where God has gifted you. But once you find that, then you have a place to serve Him. And that's part of your walk with God. Take advantage of the ministries in which multiple members of your family can participate. Things like Sunday School, Awana, VBS. Uh, because it's a lot easier to be committed to something when other people are also committed to the same thing. Because even if you don't feel like going, they're going to nag you to go. Come on, let's go. We, we're going to be late. Or that they're going to encourage you about keeping up with what you're supposed to be keeping up with. Plus, if you're coming to a place and you've got young kids and there's a place for the kids, it's a little easier for you to be able to participate in an adult conversation, isn't it? So take advantage of those things. Another key one, I think, especially for your moms, and I think a lot of times you miss the opportunity because you're not looking for it. Be open to ministry opportunities that are to you individually. We often think we have to wait until the church organizes something, then that's ministry. That's not true. Most of the ministry you're going to be doing in your life is going to be done in an individual basis. Something comes up, an opportunity is there, and you're going to be dealing with it. Okay. For example, you take your kids to the park and you start talking to the other moms. What opportunities to start witnessing to these other moms? Or talk about godly principles of parenting. Or anything of bringing up godliness. The opportunities are there. Another one, um, visit orphans, widows, shut-ins, nursing homes, any of those kinds of things. That's personal ministry. Take your kids with you. Let them start seeing how to minister as well. Uh, It could be preparing meals or helping those in need. Let your kids participate in that. Involve them in ministry. There's all sorts of things that pop up. A lot of it is individual. God's given you the opportunity. It boils down to this. Your relationship with God must be set as the priority. And these are just some practical ways to trying to help you keep it at that priority. If you allow other things to supplant it, then your walk with God is going to falter And everything else I talk about this morning is going to suffer. Life will end up being going through the motions without any significant purpose or with no purpose at all. Instead of living life to its fullest with eternal purposes that influence everyone around you, you must make your walk with God the priority of your life. Okay. To simply recap, it is more important than your housework. It is more important than having a gourmet meal prepared for your husband, even though I know he'd like that. It's still more important. He'd much rather that you be a godly individual and easy to get along with because you're so godly and a blessing to him than the fanciest meal you can possibly prepare. Okay? Make sure the priorities are in the right place. Okay, the second area I want to mention, though, is your walk with your husband. Now, I realize that many of you are not married, But the principles here apply regardless. There's principles involved that for those who are married simply apply to that particular man. But all the principles we apply to that particular man that you're living with, your husband, are dealing with your character, not things you're doing. It has to do with who you are before Christ. And so the principles apply to all of you. Let's begin with this simple premise. God has created all people with a purpose. Every single one of you. You have a purpose that God has given you. And that purpose, let me remind you, is not yourself. Okay? You are not the purpose of your existence. God has given men and women different but complementary roles. Today, we're focusing on the specific role of the wife. We'll address the men on Father's Day. Now, our understanding of the role of a wife begins in Genesis chapter 2. God made Eve... From a rib out of Adam. God then gave Eve to Adam to be his, and the old King James word is helpmeet, and it's a proper word. It is one who is corresponding to him to assist him. That's the purpose of your creation. You said, well, I don't like that. Well, that's what God said. You'll have to take that up with him. Paul expanded that on that in 1 Corinthians 11, verses 8 and 9. And watch this carefully. This is It's in the midst of another discussion, but the two verses bring out this point commenting on this purpose of why God made woman. The man does not originate from woman, but woman from man, for indeed man was not created for the woman's sake, but the woman for the man's sake. Now you say you don't like that. Well, again, this is what God said. You got to take it up with him. But think about it this way. If you still need something to grasp onto to be proud, okay? He can't get along without you. All right? Isn't Genesis saying is the only the first thing that was not good was what man being alone? That's not a good thing. So he created you to make sure that wasn't going to happen. Okay, that's a good thing. And after he did that, remember at the end of the sixth day, after he created woman, he said it was not just good. He said it was okay. So you're the ones who made it very good. All right. Does that help your ego a little bit here? Maybe a little bit. Okay. Now, Paul addresses the role of the wife to her husband in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 21 through 33. Understand it has a context. In the context of all believers walking as wise rather than foolish, verse 15, in the context of believers, men and women, in mutual submission to one another under the fear of Christ, which is verse 20, The wife takes the primary role of submission and showing respect for her husband, as head. Verse 21 does not have a verb. It's applied from verse 20. All of us in submission to one another in the fear of Christ, wives to your husbands. Okay? The verb is supplied from the verse before. That's its context. This is simply your primary role and how you will fit within the family. He has to take on the primary role of leading his wife in purity and sacrificially loving her as Christ does the church and as he loves his own body. That's the command to him, and we will get to that on Father's Day. 1 Peter 3, verses 1 through 6, addresses the same issue, but it expands more on this manner of submission, the attitude of it, the character that's behind it. Starting in verse 1, Peter says this, "...in the same way you wives be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives, as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Let not your adornment be merely external, braiding the hair, wearing gold jewelry, or putting on dresses. Let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God." Sarah's going to give an example of one who had that kind of uh, submission and respectful behavior that 's the model that is the character that God wants you to have. this gentle and quiet spirit. A godly wife is to be an asset to her husband, a blessing to him proverbs thirty one ten through thirty one deals with that a strong willed selfish nagging wife is an ungodly detriment to any man. A righteous and gentle behavior of a godly wife not only serves as a blessing to a good husband, but it serves as a correction to one who's disobedient to the word. Now, let me quickly add here that 1 Peter 3 needs to be taken in its context and also the greater context of all the scriptures. I've seen people who camp on those particular verses and almost to the exclusion of everything else God says about behavior of women in general, Christians in general, And all those other commands uh, to the point that it's like everything's about her being quiet. That's not what it's about. Every command that God gives you still must be fulfilled. A woman's allegiance is first to the Lord Jesus Christ, not her husband. Do you understand that? Your first allegiance is to Christ. And you must resist any effort that is made to pull you away from Christ, to get you to walk in a way that is ungodly. You must resist that because your first allegiance is to Christ. He is the one you are in submission to. Only in submission to him can you be in submission to your husband. It must be to Christ first. That means all the commands that God has given must be obeyed, including all the one another commands. Now, most of those we pointed out last week are good. We encourage... We love, we're patient, but there's also that one we talked about last week that's difficult. You may need to admonish even the point of church discipline. Okay, It doesn't seem like it's done very much, but it's still there. That's what Scripture says. You have to obey all the commands. The emphasis in Peter here is a chaste and respectful behavior that demonstrates this inner quality of a gentle and quiet spirit. That is a care that develops only in the context of Christ being sufficient, even when your husband is disobedient to the word. Is your relationship with Christ so secure, so strong, that when your husband is doing everything he shouldn't be doing, that you're still secure in Christ, that you can still be calm, you can still be gentle, you can still be at peace, even when he is not, and, trying to, and he's trying to make your life miserable. That's the context. Are you walking with Christ to that degree. Now, why am I making such a big deal with this? Because you cannot be a better mother than you are a wife. Why? Because you are modeling for your children what it means to be godly in everything that you do, including how you are dealing with your husband. If you are an ungodly wife, you will teach your children to be ungodly. If you are a godly wife, you will teach your children to be godly by your very example. Well, what are some practical ways to walk with a husband in godliness? Again, we go back to first, keep your priorities in proper order. God is first, your husband is second, you're third. Actually, we're going to throw a couple others in here, so you're in a bit more like five or six down there somewhere, but God is before your husband. You are after that. That is the Christian way, isn't it? Next, develop your character and practice so that you are blessing to God, from God to your husband. Again, that go back to Proverbs 31. Spend some time in that section. Notice the characteristics, the qualities this woman has, and try and emulate them yourself. Now, I admit, I've exposited that passage before. It is a tough model to follow. There's some incredible woman in that chapter, but seek to emulate it. Pick one section and work on one section at a time, but seek to emulate that. That's a role model for you. Next, be your husband's private prayer warrior. See, that I realize that some of you probably don't pray for him as much as you should until he's not being what he's supposed to be. Then you really pray for him, right? Lord, make him repent! Pray before he starts being disobedient to the word. Be the encourager. Lord, help him be on track. Help him be a solid witness. Help him be a godly man, as well as help me be the godly wife I need to be. Help us glorify you in our marriage. Okay. Be your husband's private prayer warrior. Never discount what God can do in and through him by your prayers on his behalf. Be your husband's greatest encourager. For all their bravado, a man does need to know that his wife supports him in his endeavors. You may not respect everything about him, but find the things that you do respect and start there. Build him up from there. You can make or break him. There is truth to the old adage that behind every great man is a great woman. And then remember that your marriage is to be a reflection of Christ and the church. Be sure that as so far it depends on you that it is. You fulfill your part. Of that reflection. A third area I want to mention, this will be brief, is your walk before other people. I mention this briefly because not only must be a good example of godliness to your husband, you must be that kind of example to all people, right? Why? Because your example in daily life is going to speak much louder to your children than any instruction that you give them. It cannot be, do as I say, not as I do. Your children are going to pick that up, and they're going to do as you do. Or they may do worse. My parents are hypocrites. I don't care. I'll do what I want. What are you doing before others? If you steal, cheat, and lie, don't be surprised if your children do the same. And since you're not going to be perfect in this life, you also need to be humble enough to make sure that your children learn how to properly deal with sin through confession Apologies, asking forgiveness, and making restitution when you've harmed others. That is how they're going to learn to deal with their sin. Your example. Again, you cannot become a godly mother if your godliness is not self-evident to other people. And then the fourth area. Becoming a godly mom requires you to have a godly walk with your kids. We live in a day and age when parenting philosophies and parenting practice in America are opposite of what scriptures teach. You must be willing and able to stand against the norms of society and raise your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, regardless of what anybody else around you does. We're required for that. If you want to be a good mother, you must parent according to God's instructions. Now, the scriptures are clear that the responsibility for parenting falls on dad. The father is the one that God is going to hold accountable. Okay? Okay. We'll expand on that a little bit on Father's Day as well. The men are responsible. However, the practical side of this is that the majority of the child rearing is going to be done by the mother because she is the one that's going to be spending the most time with the children. She is doing that under the authority of dad and needs to be doing it in conjunction with him. But you're the one who's carrying out all the practical aspects of this for the most part. You're the one who's spending the time there. We find this dual responsibility throughout Scriptures. Let me just point out a few things from Proverbs, which points it out. Both have a responsibility, though Dad is the one who will be held accountable by God. Proverbs six, twenty through twenty two says, My son, observe the commandment of your father, do not forsake the teaching of your mother. Bind them continually on your heart, tie them around your neck. When you walk about they will guide you, when you sleep, they will watch over you. When you awake, they will talk to you. Both are involved. Proverbs 10.1 gives weight to the idea because the way a child turns out has a direct effect upon the parents. That verse says, a wise son makes a father glad. Actually, it makes both glad. A foolish son is a grief to his mother. Father too, but both are involved. Proverbs 17.25 adds, A foolish son is a grief to his father and bitterness to her who bore him. If we raise our children in foolishness, then both they and we are going to reap the tragic consequences that are going to result. If we raise our children in godliness, we will reap the blessings that result. Both parents reap the consequences. Now, what are the basics of walking in godliness with your children? Well, it begins with loving the Lord God with all your heart, doesn't it? Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 9, is a direct command to Israel, but it is one that expresses very clearly what every godly parent should do. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. These words I'm commanding you today shall be on your heart. If it's not there, you can't pass it on. That's where it starts. Verse 7, You shall teach them diligently to your son, shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorsteps of your house and on your gates. Teaching children about God begins with your own love for God and then extends to pointing out his hand and his will in every single situation of life. Whatever you're doing, you're pointing it out. Teaching your children about God uh, also then extends into wisdom. Wisdom. Now, that begins with a proper fear of the Lord and then extends into a proper application of knowledge in life. The uh, very purpose of the book of Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 1, verse 2, is to know wisdom and instruction. And so it's filled with all these pithy sayings in seeking to accomplish that goal the wise hear and increase in learning while fools will despise it the wise and godly mother teaches her children to be wise now we live in a society that places a high value on knowledge but our society does not place hardly any value on godly wisdom anymore we got a lot of knowledge but a lot of fools and i mean that in the biblical sense okay they have forgotten wisdom Parents, remember, your responsibility for training your child's character and teach them wisdom is regardless of the manner in which they receive their academic instruction. It does not matter if they go to public school, private school, or you homeschool them. That's simply the academics. The question is, what are you teaching them in character? You can teach them character in any of those environments. It can be harder in some of them, but you're still responsible to teach that character. Let me put it this way. Knowledge and skills are important, but they are always secondary to the development of a godly character in your child. Who cares if they get an A on the test when to get that they had to compromise their values because the teacher required something that was contrary to your values. Praise God if they fail and their character is developed. Okay? It isn't about graduating summa cum laude. It's not even about graduating It is about the character your children have before God in life because that's the only thing that really counts. And I'll guarantee you this too. A person with a godly character will always do better in any society than a person who's done well academically and has a lousy character. Okay? Any kind of job you can think of, the person, well, except maybe, now I can think of jobs, lousy characters, do seem to get promoted. You do too. You may work for one. But understand that whoever the employer is, if your character is lousy, you come in late, you get drunk, you lie, you cheat, you're stealing from him, are you going to keep your job? No. You come in and you have a godly character, you do keep your job. If you are a businessman and you have a godly character, your customers keep coming back because they trust you. So while knowledge and skills, again, are important, they're always secondary to the development of a godly character in your kids. Now, you cannot control whether your child will become a genuine Christian. But you can make sure they know the truth of the gospel, and you can train them to be honest and respectful and courteous and a diligent worker, even if they reject the gospel. Why do I know that? Because generations of America have been taught exactly that. They didn't know the Lord Jesus Christ, their Savior. It was a cultural Christianity that they followed, but they knew what was right and wrong and were trained by their parents to make sure they did right. That happens in other societies, too. They reject the gospel out of hand. But the parents have still taught their children courtesy and honesty and diligence. Now, what are some practical ways to walk with your children in godliness? Again, first priority. Love God yourself. That's first. Because only out of that can you teach them properly about God and his will for their lives. Your children need to be able to see that you love God in everything that you do in life. Again, that's why your walk is the starting point of becoming a godly mother. The second priority, train the character of your children, just as I had just said. Your example, a big part of that. So how are you walking with your husband? How are you walking with others in the world? What is your example? Is it a godly example? Next, be a diligent prayer warrior on behalf of your children. Diligent in that. Be actively involved in the lives of your children. However... Do not allow your child to become the center of your life. The child is not. God is the center of your life. Behind him is your husband. Include your children so they become trained by you in giving themselves to others. Otherwise, you just foster selfishness in them. And they already have that to begin with. You don't have to create selfishness in a child. It's there. You've got to train it out of them. So don't make them the center of your life. They're a big part of it, but they're not the center of it. Direct and encourage your children to do hard things that will improve their character, skills, and dependence upon the Lord. Do not cater to their wants and desires. Challenge them. Okay, they fail. Okay, you learn from your failures. Well, let's do it again. Let's try again. Be an encourager. Don't berate them when they fail. Encourage them to keep trying. And so do challenge them with hard things that are going to be difficult to do. Keep in mind that the goal that you are training them is to make them... An independent adult who's a blessing to others. Too often we forget that, and we think it's about we want our kids to be good friends with us. I'm not that concerned about whether they're friends with me. I want them to be godly sons who are going to make a, be a blessing in the world. And you know what? When I do that, they're going to end up being friends. In fact, going to be more than that. They're going to be those who that I'm going to trust and enable uh, trust them even with my life that they will correct me and I will long for it and desire it. There will be a friendship to develop when they're adults. But you've got to train them to become independent adults who are blessings to others. That's your goal in parenting. And then for those with adult children, be sure to cut the apron strings. Even if they want to keep sewing those strings back on quickly or putting Velcro or something on there, cut the strings and throw them away. Okay? Be available, be an encourager, be a resource, Being willing to help, to aid to them. But do not take upon yourself their responsibilities. They have their monkey. It is their monkey. Don't let the monkey jump back on you. It's their monkey. We even use that as an illustration. We have some monkeys. We did that for a while. They would come to us and want us to take on their responsibility. We grab the monkey and throw it to them and it says, It's your monkey, not mine. We've got to train them, okay? Be available. Give advice as well, but don't interfere. Give them the respect as another adult. Yes, they're always a son. They're always a daughter, but they also become an adult. Give them that respect and build them up that way. Let me leave you with this thought. In your role as a mother, you will have a major influence upon your children and all of those that you care and nurture as a secondary mother or a substitute mother, what will that influence be? There's an interesting truth that comes out in First and Second Kings. At the end of each king's reign, there is a formula that is used. Every single king of Judah has this listed. It will list the name of the king. It will list how old they were when they began to reign. It will list how long they reigned. They will then list the name of the mother with a summary statement about whether that king was good or evil in the sight of the Lord. The inference is direct and it is purposeful. The mother had direct influence upon the character of her son and therefore the manner in which he ruled, whether it was good or evil. Mom's influence was there. Be serious about your role as a mom. You have more influence and consequence than you may think you have. Your legacy will follow in the character and the deeds of every single life that God enables you to touch.